what this morning we're going to do is talk about being tested. We've been looking at King David's life. The problem with King David's life at the moment in the early part of the story is that he's not yet king. He's still a boy. He's a teenager, in fact. And the bigger challenge that he faces is that he has an adversary. An adversary in somebody who should have been supporting him but wasn't. And that is the previous king or the first king, King Saul. How many of you have found that when you're tested, you're often tested by things that you don't want to be tested by? Is that right? Yeah, that's how tests work, isn't it? You don't always sort of choose your test. Uh, Unlike Olympians, Olympians choose the discipline under which they will be tested. But being tested in our faith is about the things of God being made known to us about ourselves and how we respond to those challenges that we face. As I said last week, our life is probably measured in this way. It's 10% of what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to it. Is that fair to say? And and the more I think about that, the more I consider that, I think that's fair to say. It's true. It's true that we have to respond to these challenging things. Now, David's story is one where he was chosen. He didn't choose himself. He was chosen. He was minding his own business, just tending the sheep, you know? The next thing, one of his brothers came running out and says, hey, the prophet Samuel's here. He's wanting to visit the family. Would you mind coming back? So he comes back, he walks in the door, the, uh, maybe the Shekinah glory of God goes on him. David is now anointed as the new king. Just a kid, just a kid. He didn't choose it. But in choosing what God chose, he actually chose to accept the fact that God had chosen him. And so therefore, his choices were now in the hands of God. He was trying to make good choices. And David grew up in very much like a Christ Christ-like manner. We, we see in the Gospels how Jesus grew up in uh, confidence before God and he won the confidence of, of men around him. Okay, So here is David doing exactly the same thing. David is winning the affection and the attention of the people. Not only has he slayed Goliath, but now he's going out beating the Philistines every weekend. Instead of rugby, they go out and whoop the Philistines. And he'd come back and the people were celebrating his victories and Saul the king had had enough of it. Already we saw last week how Saul tried to kill him. But now another character is in this story, somebody who emerged last week. But this person is going to be a vital link in this whole story of David's testing time and how he's developed to be the king. Okay, developed to be the king. And so we're going to look at this relationship that is beyond blood. Bigger than blood, thicker than blood. And that is the relationship between David and King Saul's son, Jonathan. Probably in all scripture, there's no relationship as uh, beautiful as this one between two men. Surely we see David having lots of significant relationships. But here is a relationship between two men who should never have been friends. Never have been friends, really. They should have been enemies. Jonathan should have sided with his father, and we'll explain why in a moment. But these two became very, very close and made a covenant with one another that they would always look out for each other, always have each other's back. David, at this time in that story, was at the peak of his young reputation, his young reputation. He was known as a man of God, a fine warrior of great character, and everything he did turned to gold. And we find in 1 Samuel 18 how it is that Jonathan responds to David when he meets him. It says, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. 
Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. What's going on here is something far more significant than just giving a soldier in the army some better equipment. What's going on here is the prince is dressing down to give the shepherd the authority and the ability to stand in front of the people with the prince's clothes on and say, I have been chosen by God, whereby Jonathan was chosen by man. And it was Jonathan who saw this. Jonathan knew, even though that he had the right to be the king following the death of his father Saul, he could see in David a better person. He could see in David a better king. He could see a better leader. He could see someone who had great character. And what an incredibly humbling thing to do, to stop and to say, I'm going to give over my rights to this man, David, because he is a better person. Isn't that huge? Now, some of you would have seen the opening of the Olympic Games, you know, when they light the torch. And um, I was a bit late with my preparation, this idea sort of came to me a bit late, so I didn't get a chance to capture the man's name. But the man who lit the torch was relatively unknown. Not like some years ago when we had Muhammad Ali light the torch of the Olympic flame. Everybody knew who he was. This guy was a Brazilian who at a previous Olympics many years ago was running in the marathon. And as he was running in the marathon, he was leading the marathon with only about a kilometre to go. He was winning the race. And a member of the public ran out onto the track and tackled him to the ground. And he got up and he took off and he ended up getting third, ended up getting a bronze medal. And his response was, oh, well, that's what happens, you know? That's what happens. That's just the way things go. And he was acknowledged for his humility by the whole world, and the Brazilian people have embraced him. He is a man who should have got gold but took the bronze medal with grace. And his reward, his reward, ultimately a man of great character and stature within the Brazilian community, he got given the opportunity to light that Olympic flame. Isn't that an amazing story? Done for the right reasons, done in the spirit of sportsmanship. And so here we find, in a similar way, we find Jonathan acknowledging that David was the better man. And in humility, he says, I'm going to give him my weapons of warfare. I'm going to acknowledge before the troops that this man has honour and respect in our community. So here's David with this man called Jonathan who should have hated him. And it's a classic story of the the prince and the shepherd. Two people of different uh, socio and economic statuses and many respects a story that will always appeal to us because it's a story about mateship. And in Kiwi land and in Aussie land, particularly in World War I and World War II, this thing of mateship became a phenomenon known by the British as something that the Kiwis and the Australians were very well known for. You see, New Zealand and Australia, probably more New Zealand, was founded on a very egalitarian view of the world. Uh, People abandoned the class structures of of UK and Europe. And when they came to New Zealand, it didn't matter whether you had money or whether you were educated. But in the time that you go to, to, uh, to war particularly, every man was as good as the other. You had to look out for one another. And the New Zealand troops and the Australian troops in particular found that there was a limited distinction between the officers and the men, between the non-commissioned officers and the commissioned officers and the general troops. And all of these folks just simply got on with the task. And that was known, and is known now, as mateship. 
And I think this is what is happening between David and Jonathan. In spite of the uh, obvious differences between them and the way that they were raised, one as a shepherd, one as a prince, they had this mateship that existed between them. Now, last week we saw how King Saul was murderous in his intent towards David. And a couple of times he tried to throw a spear at him and pin him to the wall, as the scripture says. And they escaped to Naoth, where the Spirit of God fell upon them. Now, the fascinating thing about what we looked at last week is that the Spirit of God fell on them all. And they were all prophesying. They were all worshipping in the presence of God. It was a very, very powerful moment as they went to where Samuel the prophet and the other prophets were worshipping. And they, they, they went there for different reasons. It said that Saul prophesied and worshipped and he took all his armour off and he lay on the ground for more than a day on his face worshipping God. The difficulty with this is that when Saul gets up again, nothing changed. When Saul gets up again, nothing changes. You know, and that's the simple truth about Christian faith, isn't it? We can have all sorts of existential experiences, all sorts of opportunities may be created where the Holy Spirit will come and fall upon us. But it makes no difference if you're not any better when you get up again. You can have all sorts of experiences, but unless your heart changes, unless your mind towards your fellow person around you changes, these experiences that we meet with God are irrelevant. And here we find what goes on in Saul's life as a result of him still being bitter in heart towards David. Here we pick it up with David and uh, Jonathan having a conversation in 1 Samuel 20. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why, sh why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. There is only a step between me and death. Jonathan, despite the evidence, still wants to believe the highest of his father. Have you noticed that to be true? In blood relationships? In family relationships? Even though we know that our brother or our sister or our father or our auntie or our uncle or our cousin is, is really giving other people grief or causing trouble, we still want to be the people who hold up the highest for them and say, oh, they're just having a bad day or they've had a bad run. Things aren't going their way. That in itself is a grace that we give to our family. And it's important that we give grace, isn't it? Because we're creating a dynamic, an opportunity for that person to be restored to us as family members. And family should always be the ones who hold out the most amount of hope for someone who's going through a difficult time. We shouldn't cast off our brothers, cast off our sisters, or even our parents. We should be the ones extending grace. So here we find Jonathan doing just that even though he probably knows that Saul has already tried to throw some, his spear at David, he's still believing the highest. He's probably thinking, well, I know that my father went to Naoth where the prophet Samuel was prophesying with the prophets and he fell to the ground and he, and he had an encounter with God. Surely now 
He's not going to be out trying to kill David. Surely now after this wonderful experience, this wonderful encounter with God, he's going to be changed and different. But it wasn't to be. It wasn't to be. So this is the arrangement they made. Jonathan and David. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? So this is a very insightful view of human nature. And they're out working their plan in keeping with, with, with what they feel uh, Saul's response would be. They know that if he's wanting to kill David, he'll be angry that the opportunity is lost because David is not there at the dinner table. But if he's not wanting to kill David, he'll just go, oh sure, that's okay. He's out with his family at Bethlehem, I understand that. David is so, so convinced that, that Jonathan knows that Saul's intention is to kill him. He says, look, I'd rather be killed by your hand than your father's, so just kill me now. And Jonathan's going, no, this isn't true. My father's not going to kill you. I, can, I, I believe in you. My father believes in you. And it's this brotherly affection. And uh, we see it here in 1 Samuel 20, 17. It says, And Jonathan and David reaffirm his oath. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. These are powerful words between two men. These are are words that describe a deep, deep affection for one another. A deep sense on which we are born to be friends. We are born to be brothers. We are born for the same purpose. And in this case, it's a spiritual tie because they both want to defend the higher calling of the God of Israel's desire for the nation. And they know that somehow by fate, they have been caught up in this grand drama and they want to play their part well. They don't want to get caught up in the petty politics. They don't want to get caught up in the problems that Saul is facing with his own temperament. They can see this and they can see that's going to lead to trouble and cause grief for people. And they're trying desperately to remove themselves, which is easier for Jonathan because he's not the one having the spear pointed at him. David is the one who's being accused for no good reason. And this family, this royal family, is a family that's divided. And sadly, families do get divided, don't they? Sometimes over the most crazy things. Sometimes when you go back to the source of why things happen the way they do, you find some really, really crazy first instances of where the offence took place. 
I know that my Christmas present for you cost $50 and the one you spent on me cost 30 You miserable so-and-so. <clears throat> and that's how an offence can start. You know, I know you, you always bring the potatoes and I bring the ham. How come that happens? You're all laughing. I can see you laughing. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Exactly. Exactly. You see, families can be divided over things, but when it comes to spiritual matters, the Lord himself actually said, let the division, let the division happen. Interesting, isn't it? The Prince of Peace, the God of Reconciliation, actually said, when it comes to spiritual things, let the division occur. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus said, I've come to bring fire on earth, on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. And then later on, just a few verses on, in the same context, he says this, they will be divided, father against son and son against mother, father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The story goes on. What he's saying is, because of me, Jesus said, because of a person's desire to serve me, there will be division in a household. There will be those who say, look, if you're going to become a Christian, then we must separate. We must part ways. And I know, having heard many of your stories, these are the true stories of our everyday existence here, where some of you have made a decision for God, deciding to put him first, and family members have challenged that and said, look, uh, if you're going to do that, then I, I don't want so much to do with you anymore. You know, I think you're crazy. You know, all these things that can get thrust upon you in some form of mild persecution that only families can do that hurts so deep because the blood ties are being challenged because of spiritual ties which are of greater value in God's eyes. And so here we find David challenging Jonathan, but he's not asking Jonathan to disown his father. He doesn't want to divide a father and a son. He's just saying, will you believe me? That's all I'm asking for. Will you believe me that your father wants to kill me? And so the story unfolds, and we find that uh, Jonathan goes off to this meal with his father, the new moon feast. And this is how it unpacks itself. The next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. That's his place at the table. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favour in your eyes, let me get away to see my brother. That is why he has not come to the king's table. Now, it's interesting that Saul, now only on the second day, wonders why David isn't there, second day of the feast. So you can see he's sort of sitting on his emotions. But those emotions are about to blow. You notice how he says, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal? Now, he's talking now about his son-in-law, the guy who married his daughter, Michal. You don't talk about your son-in-law almost in the third person, unless your heart is distant from this guy. Yeah, he doesn't even call him by his name. Some years ago, my father, as was his tradition, would get a couple of pigs and put them in the bottom paddock of his orchard, and uh, all the food scraps would go there, and he'd fatten up the pigs and 
we'd find Christmas dinner was served in a porky fashion, and uh, that was where the pigs ended up. Now, my sister-in-law, who was new to the family at the time, she went down to see the cute little pigs, and we were standing there staring at them saying, what should we name the pigs? Because that was what we used to do as kids, give the pigs names. And she was horrified. She said, you only give names to your friends, and you don't eat your friends, so we're not going to give them any names. Yeah? So, fair enough. And it's a little bit of a similar vein in which here we find Saul not wanting to name his son-in-law. Why? Because he's going to kill him. Not necessarily to eat him, but he wants to kill him. Okay, he wants to kill him. He calls him the son of Jesse. So what happens? He finds that David has not come to the feast. And this is how the story goes. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. He's talking about his own wife. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? What about the shame of the father who conceived him? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. You reckon? (laughs) Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger, and on that second day of the feast he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Do you notice how he says in the third line there, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Notice how he has taken a spirit of entitlement and projected it upon his son. Only 10 or 15 years earlier, Saul had been running around the back of Bethlehem doing very little more than David was himself. It was the prophet Samuel who went to him and said, God wants you to be a king. When he was asked to be king and was prepared to be anointed at the ceremony, guess what he did? He ran away. He tried to hide. He didn't want to be king. He didn't want to choose what God had chosen. And so the people of Bethlehem, the men, went and grabbed him and forcibly carried him to the coronation ceremony. And now, because he's become the king, because he now likes this gig and thinks it's good for him and his family, he's now projecting it upon his son, saying, look, if you don't get rid of David, you won't become the king as my son. Who cares? Jonathan doesn't care. And here is the very issue here. The problem is, is that Saul hates God's plan for Israel. Saul hates God's plan for his own life. And Saul can't stand the fact that his family is now going to be cut off from this inheritance of kingship. Jonathan, on the other hand, has a completely different view of it. He says, God is good and so is his plan. And if it means that he steps down from being king and this shepherd boy from way out the back of nowhere becomes the king, and if that is what God wills, then let God's will reign. Isn't it amazing? Saul's blind fury had struck again. And I say blind quite literally because now we've seen him hurl a spear three times and he's missed three times. So, um, you know, as far as, you know, you wonder why he's got all these generals around him if he was that useless and badly needed them. And so Saul has now proven again his lack of worthiness to maintain this place as the king. 
So what happens? What happens now? Well, now we find a story that is very similar to what we find in the Gospels. Jesus, with his cousin, his close friend, John the Baptist, goes to the River Jordan and is baptised at the River Jordan. And this powerful anointing comes upon Jesus. And the very first thing that happens is he goes out, is sent out by the Spirit into the desert, into the place of testing, into the holy place where only you and God exist, where there's no distractions and nothing can separate you from the test that is happening in your life. And so we find David and Jonathan speaking again outside of the town. They had made this little arrangement uh, firing some arrows to signal each other, and a little boy had gone to collect the arrows. And so this is how the story unfolds here. It says, After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and they wept together, but David wept the most. How many of you saw the Fijian rugby team getting their gold medals from Princess Anne? It really choked me up. It really did. What did they do? They, they got down on their knees before the royal princess and they received their medals on their knees. It's a beautiful thing. It's never been done before. It was powerful, powerful. And it's humility and it's acknowledgement that she was a, uh, a part of the royal family. It's one of their traditions. Here's David, his best buddy, Jonathan, is still a prince in his eyes. He's still an heir to the throne. And in spite of the covenant, in spite of the fact that David has now just been proven right, that Jonathan's father was intending to kill him, David still bows down three times and said he puts his face to the ground as he approaches this guy and he acknowledges the touch of God that's upon his family. In humility, he approaches his closest friend and then they embrace each other and they wept. And they said that David wept the most. And we can understand why. Because at that time, David knew his life was changing forever. He was now heading into an extremely testing time. A time when he is going to go off into the valleys of Engedi, A place that is referred to as Gehenna, like a hell. A place where there will be nothing to support him except God and his own wits. A place where he will run into other people who have been in similar circumstances. The riffraff, the murderers, the beggars, the losers, the cast-offs of society. And there he will find he will no longer dine with princes and kings but dine with the outcasts of society. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Jonathan went back to the palace. Jonathan went back to the comfort. Jonathan also went back to his crazy father. David went off to the desert. The testing time had begun. And as we know, there's nothing more testing than when friendships get broken or relationships with your family get severed through circumstances that may not even be in your control. There's nothing more testing than being accused of something that you haven't done. 
and have no ability to defend yourself, when you know that when you say something, it's only going to count against you again as some sort of evidence that you were wrong in the first place. These are the conundrums of the human relationships that we have all around us all the time. And we find that David is caught up in the middle of something that he didn't start, but he knew that with God he had to finish. And how does he do it? He puts his hand in God's hand, and he says, into the desert we go, and only there can you deliver me. Let's stand. Father, we pray that as we bring this mix of human relationships, raw human emotions, our sense of injustice, the things that seem illogical to us, the confusion, the things said and unsaid, the things heard and misinterpreted, all these things are just that mishmash of human life that can often be so depressing for us. We just bring ourselves to you, Lord, and know that in these testing times, we have a choice. We have a choice to look up and to honour you, or we have a choice to look around and add fuel to a fire that will rage until we humble ourselves or somebody else does that. But Lord, you call us to be the ones who are the agents of reconciliation, people who can, with their best ability, put things right where they haven't been right. And so God, we look to you. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. And in this testing time, you'll be faithful to complete that which you've begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray for people here today who really feel the angst of separation. Maybe because you've made a solid choice for Jesus and your family have said, hey, we don't like that. We need you to continue to be who you were and to and to uh, never leave or never forsake. But we are called to something greater, where the Word says that we would, we would be separated from parents or brothers and sisters or aunties and uncles, and we find a greater fellowship in the spiritual world of our Christian relationships. Father, we thank You that beyond blood, beyond the blood of family, it has found the very source of all life through heaven itself. And we thank You, God, that in David's life we see a response that is, is worthy of your name, a response that is worthy of Jesus himself, even in the most difficult of times to find the desert place, the place where he will be made whole and ready for service. So we ask that uh, with these images and thoughts in our own mind, we can interpret the challenges of our lives and put things in the right place as we bring you into focus. We ask these things in Jesus' name.